Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. Many young Minnesota children from low-income families lack access to dental care. When oral health issues arise, caregivers often seek temporary and expensive treatment in hospital emergency rooms. But there's a simple, low-cost procedure that protects kids from developing cavities. Today on Dialogue Minnesota, we have two guests. Dr. Elise Sarvis is the dental director of the Minnesota Oral Health Project. Also joining us is Dr. Amos Dinard. He's a University of Minnesota pediatrician. They'll discuss the benefits of applying fluoride varnish to children's teeth to prevent caries, more commonly known as cavities. We caught up with them at the McNamara Alumni Center on the University of Minnesota's Minneapolis campus. Dr. Dinard, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation to be here today. Caries is the term for the process, the end result of which is the cavity. Caries is preventable. It's an infectious disease. It is preventable. If doctors and dentists work together more than they do now, uh, I think we could make big inroads into improving the oral health status of of these high-risk children. Uh, Caries today has become a silent epidemic. It's silent because no one writes about it. The only one who recently has written about caries is um, a a person who worked for the Washington Post back in 2007 when Diamante Driver, a 12-year-old boy in Maryland, had an abscess tooth. His mother could not find a dentist who would take care of him. He died of a brain abscess. And a child, a 6-year-old child in Mississippi, uh, died of generalized infection for the same cause, an abscess tooth, and no dentist who would take care of him. Well, Dr. Dinard, you are a medical doctor. We'll get a perspective from a uh, DDS, a dentist, here shortly. But um, why you, a pediatrician, why the interest in oral health? Uh, That's not something we typically see coming from a medical doctor. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, When I was in training back in the Dark Ages, um, we didn't learn anything about teeth and the mouth. The mouth was the domain of dentists. We were taught to look in the mouth for white spots for candidiasis and then immediately jump to the tonsils to see if they looked infected. But the rest of the mouth was left to dentists to take care of. Today, 80% of caries is, is seen in 30% of the kids. Uh, it's a function of your race. Yes, those who are not Caucasian have a greater likelihood of a problem than those who are Caucasian, but it's the Caucasians also have a problem. Those who are 300% of poverty are less likely to have cavities than are those who are at 100% of poverty. But nonetheless, even those at 300% uh, may very well be affected by having caries. It's a preventable disease, as I've said before. 50% of tooth decay in high-risk children goes untreated. There is the mortality, as I mentioned, Diamante Driver being one case, but there's also morbidity. Uh, when children are trying to be healthy and getting good nutrition, if they, if they chew their foods, you're going to have to have teeth to be able to chew those foods. And if they don't have teeth, they may not eat as well. They may not grow as well. Uh, if uh, you're learning to pronounce words, there are certain words that you have to form by pressing your tongue against your upper teeth. If you don't have the upper teeth, you don't sound like everybody else, and your, your peer group may make fun of you. Those who have abscess teeth, a lot of them are in pain, and they can't go to school. It was estimated in 1999 that over 51 million hours of school time were lost at that point in time because children were had abscess teeth and were out of school. 
And for every child who is under 16 years of age and who stays out of school, a parent has to miss work to stay home with that child. Thus, there's less income coming into the family because of the absence from work. Well, Dr. Dinard, at what point in your career as a physician did you really start to understand what a huge impact uh, poor oral health might have? Uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, when I, in training, we weren't taught a thing about the mouth or about teeth. But in about 1995, I was running a, a clinic that the University of Minnesota owns, Community University Healthcare Center. And um, because there was federal money in the budget, there was a dental clinic on the second floor of the building. So all of the patients at Community University Healthcare Center were able to get dental care. However, if my dental director's clinic was full on a given day and a child absolutely needed help, he uh, became more and more frustrated by the fact that he was having more and more difficulty finding a dentist in South Minneapolis who would take care of the child. Because in the mid-90s, dentists across the country took a position if the child was on Medicaid, they didn't want to see them. So Dr. Graydon and I started to, let's take advantage of the fact that we have a dental clinic in the medical clinic, and let's teach the physicians how to do caries prevention as part of well-child care. And that was going along well. And I left the clinic in 99. In 2000, I went to the first ever Surgeon General's Conference on Oral Health in America, the Plight of the Poor. And for three days, starting with the opening gong, we heard the same thing. The mouth is part of the body. And this was David Satcher when he was Surgeon General of this country. And at that meeting, I met a physician from North Carolina by the name of Olson Huff. He was retired, and he was training pediatricians and family medicine physicians in North Carolina how to prevent cavities in their populations of patients. So over dinner one night, he challenged me to come back to Minnesota and replicate what he was doing in North Carolina. So I came back I, six months earlier. The Department of Human Services of the state uh, formed a, a task force wanting to understand what the oral health status is of Minnesotans across the board, all races, all colors, all creeds, you name it. Of the 55 people on the committee, I was the sole physician, the token physician. So I called the gentleman who was running that committee, and I said, look, I've been challenged by Olson Huff in North Carolina. We reimburse physicians for putting fire varnish on teeth. The answer was an immediate yes. It was the easiest of the 50 states in this country to get the Medicaid program to agree to uh, reimburse physicians for doing caries prevention as part of well-child care. So I got some grant money, and I decided I'd develop some training materials um, and go around the state training physicians how to do caries prevention as part of well-child care. And I've been doing that ever since. And I'm now in the process of focusing on the 80 counties of greater Minnesota, uh, the rural counties where dentists, A, are hard to find in the best of situations. They're few and far between. But they also uh, are um, not wanting to take Medicaid, by and large. When my children were, were young, the starting age for dental care was three years. But about 20 years ago, the, the age of, uh, for dental care uh, dropped to one. And my dental public health friends, whom I work with at this point in my career, there's no pediatricians in it. I'm the only one, I think. Um, but nonetheless, they have said that one of the major problems is that general dentists who see 13 to 15 times more children than do pediatric dentists, general dentists, by and large, in the past, have never had a one- or two-year-old in dental school. So they have no comfort level, particularly the people who have been out in practice for 10, 20, 30 years. And they have no comfort level. So they'll tell the mothers a good time to start dental care is at age three or four, which is when they're comfortable. But by that time, these kids, 30, 40% of these kids can have cavities already. It is preventable. 
So the damage is already done. Well, you mentioned that uh, there are so many negative impacts from caries, the process that leads to cavities. You talked about the pain that the children suffer. You talked about missed school days. Obviously, the caregiver may have to take time off work, bring the child in for treatment in an emergency room. We know that only treats uh, the infection and the pain, but the underlying dental condition remains. Why is bringing children into the emergency room so problematic but yet so prevalent? Well, when you're in pain and you have no doctor who will see you and certainly no dentist will see you and you have an abscessed tooth, the clinic of last resort for a person of any age is the emergency room. And the care in the emergency rooms, uh, it accomplishes two things. You can get medications to quell the infection and medications to quell the pain. But the root problem, it can't be addressed by the physicians in, in the emergency room. They don't do that. They're not trained to do the restorative work, pulling teeth, etc. So they'll treat the pain and infection. The child goes home, no pain, no infection, goes back to school. And a month later, they've got a, another abscess tooth, or the same tooth that's been reabscessed, And they end up in the emergency room again. And I, I priced this at the hospital that I'm associated with, oh, maybe five or six years ago. Uh, an ER visit back then was five to $600 for incomplete care. Today, it's probably more like $800. And for the children who end up in, in uh, needing restorative work, the dentists don't want to do restorative work in kids unless they're under general anesthesia. That has to be done in, in a, a hospital setting. And uh, for that kind of work, when you add up what the hospital charges for the suite, what the dentist charges, and what the anesthesiologist charges, uh, back uh, when I first uh, priced this, it was something like $10,000 for one visit, one child, one tooth. And they may be back three or four years later with more teeth. So it's an expensive proposition. And uh, Medicaid will probably pay for the hospital part in the ER visit. But uh, the underlying problem is not being addressed. Our guests are Dr. Amos Dinard. He's Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School, also on the faculty of the University of Minnesota's School of Public Health. He's the medical director and founder of the Minnesota Oral Health Project. Also with us, Dr. Elise Sarvis. She's a dentist and the dental director of the Minnesota Oral Health Project and on the faculty of the University of Minnesota's Dental School as a clinical assistant professor. In a previous conversation, Dr. Dinard, you told me something that I found interesting. Uh, some of our listeners would probably ask, well, why aren't parents more diligent in getting their children the dental care they need? And you mentioned, obviously, socioeconomic uh, status can sometimes make that cost prohibitive. But you also mentioned part of it is an attitude. A lot of the children of lower income families, uh, their parents themselves had dental issues. They may have come from a lower socioeconomic background. So it's almost like they view the dental issues as a rite of passage that I got through the pain, I got through the discomfort. You can too. So we're not only trying to change behaviors, but we're also trying to change a, a mindset that's out there. I've been practicing pediatrics since uh, the 60s. And I've discovered being a, being a mother of a, of a Medicaid-eligible child is tough. You, know, you have other things to worry about. Where am I going to sleep tonight? Where am I going to eat tonight? Where will my car work, et cetera? That's one problem. The second problem is that a lot of these mothers will say, I've called six dentists and no one will take me because my child's on Medicaid. So I'm not sure that they view it as a rite of passage so much as there's an inability because the, the healthcare system doesn't make it possible for them, them to get the care that they should be getting. This is prevention. It's, you know, so many conditions can be prevented. That's all what primary care pediatrics is 
partially about is preventing other things from occurring because you're advising the caregivers what to do in advance of a problem, anticipatory guidance, and if they can handle it, given all the other factors that, that enter into being a Medicaid mom, um, I think they will start seeing some improvement in the well-being of their children. But it requires understanding toothbrushing and how to do it and when to do it and feeding. And you don't put a child to bed at night with a bottle that contains anything in it but water. But you also have to make sure that the mother hasn't put sugar in the water to make it more palatable. Because the reality is that the bacteria in the mouth digests the sugars that are in the foods that enter the mouth. And the excrement that the bacteria create in the mouth is acidic in nature and it etches the enamel to the tooth. And the caries process has started. Now, you mentioned, Dr. Dinard, that your focus in the Minnesota Oral Health Project are the 80 counties in greater Minnesota, but obviously this is a problem in all 87 counties in Minnesota and nationwide as well. What about the Twin Cities metro area? I understand there's a program at Jefferson Elementary School in Minneapolis. Tell us more about that. Well, that is a program that is staffed by community health workers under the watchful eye of a local dentist who's a few blocks away from where the school is. And uh, they have been trained to do caries prevention, putting fluoride varnish on kids' teeth and educating the caregivers. They're not pulling and drilling on teeth. They're doing prevention. It'll be interesting to see whether in that population, over time, the caries incidence rate is much lower than it, it w was before this program started. Are you still looking to collect data? Is there enough data out there to prove that this process really does prevent caries and ultimately cavities? I'm going to leave that question to our dental colleague here across the table from me. I'll introduce her. Her name is Dr. Elise Sarvis. She is the dental director for the Minnesota Oral Health Project. And Dr. Sarvis, welcome to Access Minnesota. Thank you so much for having me today and, and really highlighting this issue for the state of Minnesota. So I'll, I'll pose the question to you now. So we know that fluoride varnish is one of the best public health measures that we have to prevent against cavities. Fluoride is a naturally curling element, and what it does is it makes the hard outer surface of our teeth, the enamel of our teeth, even stronger. And what that can do for kids is fluoride varnish is a concentrated amount of that fluoride to help prevent and make uh, cavities and make that hard outer shell of enamel stronger to prevent this carious process. Well, we'll get back to you too, doctor, because we have more questions as well that we'll, uh, we'll refer to your dental expertise for that. Dr. Dinard, talking about uh, the process itself, it, it sounds like this is a very simple procedure that could be done in, in basically any clinic setting and not necessarily by a highly trained medical professional. If you could put polish on your nails, you can put varnish on teeth. It is very simple. It takes three minutes or less. If the varnish hardens on contact, it's non-invasive. Anyone can put varnish on it. It's a no-brainer. You don't have to get a lot of training. Talking to folks who are not dentists, who are not physicians, who do it, and they say it's a piece of cake. We're talking with Dr. Amos Dinard. He's an associate professor of pediatrics at the U of M Medical School and the School of Public Health here at the University of Minnesota. He's also the medical director and founder of the Minnesota Oral Health Project. We're talking also with Dr. Elise Sarvis. She's a dentist. She is the dental director of the Minnesota Oral Health Program. We know historically there has been uh, a certain uh, element of the public that has questioned the use of fluoride. Uh, big controversies back in the 1950s when many municipal water systems started to put fluoride into their water supplies. 
we might think that controversy has died down as more evidence has been accumulated about the preventative power of fluoridation in water. But are you still seeing some resistance from people who think fluoride is a bad thing? Well, of course, it's a communist plot. But that isn't going to change anything. There, there will be a small group who will say, I'm not going to, I don't want to have fluoride in my water. I don't want to have fluoride in my kid's teeth. That's a parental choice. And if the child's teeth rots out, the parent has to bear the burden. But um, it I think it should be recognized that in 2005, the Centers for Disease Control and, and Prevention rated fluoridation of public water one of the top 10 public health measures of the 20th century. It has cut the carriage rate across all populations a considerable amount. So I think we should leave fluoride in the water. We'll ask a dentist perspective now. Uh, Dr. Sarvis, do you ever get pushback from your patients about the use of fluoride? We have a lot of questions. Parents want safe things for their kids. That makes sense. Um, but we know that fluoride is really helpful in preventing cavities. We've known this and have evidence from the 1800s to now that says it's one of our best public health measures. Like Dr. Dinard said, the CDC ranked it as one of the top 10 public health measures of the 21st century. That goes up there with vaccines and safety belts as well. So fluoride is one of the best things we have. Um, also diet and hygiene and that educational piece that is so important as well. In response to that comment, uh, I think it should be recognized that around 1910, a dentist in Colorado identified a group of males who had extraordinarily brown teeth and extraordinarily brittle teeth, but absolutely no cavities. And he deduced that the water that was coming down the Rocky Mountains that they were drinking on a regular basis was loaded with fluoride. So the chemists took uh, the fluoride level of that water and reduced it to the point where it doesn't, it no longer discolors the teeth, but it prevents the cavities. So this is a naturally occurring phenomenon. Oh, yes. In, in Redwood County in Minnesota, there are two areas where medical, where pediatric clinics are. They're 10 miles apart. And the doctors in one of the clinics sees lots of kids with cavities. The doctor in the other, the doctors in the other clinic see none. And the the water table in Minnesota is by and large fluoride poor, but there are pockets of water in the state where there's plenty of fluoride. So, I, my guess is that that clinic is in an area where the water is fluoridated naturally. Obviously, the prevention process is pretty straightforward. Uh, you don't want to uh, give children highly acidic drinks. Uh, you want to, uh, if possible, get the, uh, the fluoride varnish on their teeth. How do we go about better educating the public on this? And what needs to happen? Obviously, you know, you're a very passionate advocate of this, uh, Dr. Dinard. But does legislation have to take place? Does there have to be more public policy dealing with this issue? What do you think needs to happen well, I, to really make this uh, uh, known throughout not only the state of Minnesota, but throughout the nation? I think that the caregivers need to be extremely well-educated. You can't force a parent to do certain things unless, of course, you it, it is likely to be injurious to the child, in which case you can prosecute for child abuse. But putting varnish on teeth is not going to take you in that direction. So the parents have to understand if they want their children's mouths to be healthier than their own mouths, there's something they can do about it. It'll take a little effort and... You know, pretty soon, I think it'll be so ingrained after a while that you give it very little thought anymore. I imagine you're enlisting a lot of partners to get this important message out to the public. Tell us about the partnerships you have developed and are in the process of developing to get the message out. As a pediatrician, I'm working hard with the, the physicians and the nurse practitioners and the physician assistants who are responsible for the well-being of the child from a medical perspective. This is like immunizations. There are a few people who don't want their kids immunized either. 
So you have to recognize the fact that there are some folks out there who are just against these kinds of preventive measures. But certainly uh, the incidence of measles, for example, um, is way down. You don't see much measles anymore as a trainee. I saw it all the time back in the 60s when I was in training because the vaccines hadn't come along yet. So there's prevention in vaccines, there's prevention in fluoride virus plus parental education. And I think the parental education is of the two aspects. I'd rather spend my time educating the caregiver and having him or her do the right things than put the varnish on. Because if you don't change behaviors, it's not going to make any difference. One of your partners is the Lions Club. Tell us about that partnership. Well, the Lions Club, two years ago, one of my colleagues, Dan Snowball, is a retired academic faculty member at Southwestern State University of Minnesota. And he was in physical medicine and rehab. Uh, When I started my project, I thought to myself, gee, I really need some local vocal advocates for the project. So I thought, what about 4-H? So I went to the state at St. Paul, talked to the woman who was in charge of the 4-H program, and she thought it was a great idea. And we were all set to you know, promote it with 4-H. What she didn't tell me, and it's either because she didn't know or didn't remember, probably the latter, was that a child in 4-H has to think of his or her own project. You can't give him or her one. And since they didn't know enough about oral health, they couldn't very well put a project together. That's something down the line. So instead, I thought, well, let's take advantage of some of the uh, groups that are in existence in these towns. So we picked on Lions, Kiwanis, and Rotary. And I started calling around asking when the meetings were. And when I I talked to one gentleman who was in the Lions Club, and he said, look, given the way Lions is is constructed, put together, they're top down. Uh, The other two are more bottom up. Uh, He said, you really need to talk to a lion. And we've got just the right person down here in southwestern Minnesota, Dan Snowball. He's a well-known lion. He's been a district governor, et cetera. We were invited to a, a Lions Club meeting, and we presented our materials, and they voted unanimously two years ago and one year ago, that they would support our project. And we weren't asking for money. We were asking for people who could become verbal advocates in their communities, getting the community educated. So when you're out playing golf, you can talk to your golfing partner about the golfing partner's child's teeth. And what are they doing about it to keep them healthy? It's education of the caregivers. It doesn't seem like this would necessarily be that expensive of a proposition. It's a simple treatment. Uh, The materials, I imagine, are not particularly expensive. The varnish is cheap as can be. And if if you are a part of a health system that's got maybe 50 clinics focused, located around Minnesota, they probably have central buying. And they're going to get it at at a very low price per dose. And it takes three minutes of time, and the people whom I've wanted educated are the certified medical assistants and the nursing assistants, et cetera, in the medical clinics. They are so enthusiastic about suddenly having a new, a new task where they can go back and integrate more and interface more with the patients and, and educate them. Right now, all they're doing is weighing and measuring and changing diapers and so forth, but they can do more, and they're very enthusiastic about doing that. We should mention there's a place you can go for more information. It's crushcavities.com, and you can also like them on Facebook. We've been talking with Dr. Amos Dinard. Dr. Dinard is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Minnesota Medical School and the School of Public Health, and uh, he is the medical director and founder of the Minnesota Oral Health Project. We've also been talking with Dr. Elise Sarvis. She is a dentist. She's the dental director of the Minnesota Oral Health Project. Dr. Sarvis, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you so much for having us and highlighting this really important part of overall health for kids in Minnesota. 
And Dr. Dienard, thank you so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Well, thank you very much for having me here. And I hope all of those folks who are in a position to improve the oral health status of the children, I will say to you the same thing I say to a group of certified medical assistants whom I have just trained. Go forth and varnish. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.